Hello and greetings and welcome to another edition of the And You Shall Know That I Am Yahweh, an Ezekiel podcast. I'm Ethan, very glad that you've joined us and thank you for the gift of spending time as we explore more of what God has made known through the prophet Ezekiel. We pick up in Ezekiel chapter 9. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it had rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And Yahweh said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house, and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking, and I was left alone, I fell upon my face, and I cried, Ah, Lord Yahweh, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, and the city full of injustice. For they say, Yahweh has forsaken the land, and Yahweh does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen, with the writing case at his waist, brought back word, saying, I have done as you commanded me. So Ezekiel is in the midst of this vision of Jerusalem. Uh, In chapter 8, this began, and it began in the middle of 592, uh, about a year and a little bit after he'd received the original messages um, from the the glory of God that he saw in Babylon, and the prophesying that he would do regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, the violence, and the devastation the people would experience uh, beforehand. So now what God has done is he's brought him in visions to Jerusalem. And we've used the horrible metaphor of a movie. Because Ezekiel is seeing Jerusalem as it really is, in terms of its geography, in terms of the locations of the buildings and things of that nature. But the events that he is seeing taken place are not actually happening in reality. And if that wasn't manifest in chapter 8, after seeing all these series of abominations, it's very much true here in chapter 9, where we see this uh, devastation. And so in chapter 8, the first thing that that Ezekiel was shown by this angel, we assume, a heavenly intermediary, uh, who is showing him these things as a series of abominations, where he has seen that there is an idol of a god in, in the temple itself, that you've got uh, the elders of Israel and others serving all of these different gods and bowing down to these different images uh, in 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 their in their secret places, the women weeping for Tammuz or Demuzi, and then he's seeing people uh, in the holy place bowing down to the sun in the east and turning their backs on God, and the great abominations that are taking place. 
And so now, because of these abominations, the heavenly messenger calls out in Ezekiel's hearing for the executioners of the city. Uh, Six men appear uh, from the upper gate facing north. They have a weapon for slaughter. Um, The implement is not described in a way that we would understand, but we understand it's something to slaughter with. And we also see a man clothed in linen. He's got a writing case at his waist. Give us an indication he's some kind of scribe, somebody who would be taking notes. And they stand in the holy place beside the bronze altar. And again, they have the appearance of men, but they are likely to be understood as angels. And so we're told that the glory of the God of Israel, which Ezekiel had seen in the Shabar Canal in Babylon, has seen when he came in this Jerusalem vision, has now moved up to the threshold of the temple and calls to this man in linen. And he says, go through the city and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations committed in it. And the, put a mark on is literally the verb to, in, in, to tavify. A tav is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so he was supposed to go put tavs on everybody's uh, face. And the one thing that early Christians noted about that is that in epigraphic Hebrew, in the Hebrew uh, that would be write, written in the days of Ezekiel, uh, the Tav is written kind of like an X, or thus kind of like a cross. And so uh, this, the, the, the Tav uh, cross, so to speak, is being put on the heads of all of those who are going to be spared. And who are going to be spared? It's a very, very powerful thing here. The men who sigh and groan over all the abominations committed in Jerusalem. It's a very visceral, evocative, powerful message uh, and something that we can learn a lot from. The ones who are going to be saved are those who deeply felt the injustice and the wrong at the evil that the people were doing. And so they sighed and groaned over these abominations. Um, As Christians, it's always a challenge to understand how we're supposed to respond to the immorality that's around us. Um, And very important, especially keep in mind in Ezekiel, that the immorality that's being done, the abominations are being done by the people of God, Um, let alone the pagans out there. And we need to be very careful just kind of overlaying this on our approach to the world because there's that extra layer. The the closest we can see is what do we do when we see uh, people in the church not uh, living the way they should. And of course, there we have 1 Corinthians 5 and other passages about church discipline talking about the need uh, uh, to deal with things in that way. And so there is a way in which we can overlay this if we just need to be careful with how we do that. Uh, when we look in our society and see all kinds of ugliness, um, it it's very tempting to become uh, numb to it, to... Some people wildly agitate and, and, and condemn it in very loud language that, that ultimately is unproductive. But it's very easy on the other side to become numb and indifferent to it and act like it's not there, pretend that it's not there. We can imagine that there is a whole class of people in Jerusalem who may not be actively permit, participating in these abominations, but they've grown numb to it. And so they don't sigh or groan over the fact that these abominations are being done in the city. And so... Uh, as far as we can tell, those people are being swept away along with those who are actually doing the abominations. And it's a, a warning to us that, yes, the sin all around us is unrelenting. And it's very easy to grow numb to it. But we cannot grow numb. We need to sigh and groan over 
the disregard of life that we see all around us, the uh, greed that we see all around us, the the pain and suffering that we see all around us, and that, that need, we need to still feel about that, that we need to sigh and groan over all these things being done, and sigh and groan before God about it, um, that... Uh, we pray that justice would be executed speedily, that uh, people would come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved, that righteousness would be accomplished. So those are the ones who are going to be saved. Now the rest of the people, um, the Yahweh has told the other angels to go through and strike. That This guy goes through first uh, with marking everybody, and then the six other guys go through and strike down. Uh, and they should have no pity. Kill anybody you see. Uh, do not touch anybody on whom is the Tav, but kill everybody else. Old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. And they began with those elders before the house, those guys that we saw in chapter 8 who were worshipping all these different creatures. And again, thinking about Ezekiel as a priest, think about the power at this time of of sanctity versus defilement. This is the holy place. Yes, they have been defiling it, which is part of Ezekiel's whole thing. And now God's going to show it defiled because the blood of these men are being spilled. And so that God is literally giving these uh, men, these angels, permission to defile his sanctuary. And of course, it's because it's already been defiled by what they have done. Now it is being defiled by their blood. And as these guys go out and make a complete devastation of Jerusalem, a thorough devastation, Ezekiel is just left wondering, will you destroy the entire remnant of Israel because of what's going on here in Jerusalem? I mean, it's not an excessive concern. Um, even though he knows that there are exiles in Babylon, even though he has confidence in God's purposes, uh, again, we read this knowing the end from the beginning. We know what's going to happen after Ezekiel. Ezekiel doesn't have the benefit of that. So he's just seeing it play out right in front of him. And for what it looks like from this illustration, everybody's going to die. There, you know, he, We're supposed to get from this picture that the guy going out tavifying people is not tavifying a lot of people. Uh, that it is a valid concern here that Ezekiel has. And God doesn't exactly make him feel better about it, does he? Uh, he says, The guilt is exceedingly great of the house of Israel and Judah, because the land is full of blood and the city is full of injustice. And again, just the, the same quotation almost as we have seen, uh, that the elders of the house of Israel who are bowing down to all these images were saying in 8.12, uh, Yahweh does not see us, Yahweh is forsaken the land. Here, Yahweh is forsaken the land, Yahweh does not see. Um, they have taken this as a principle as to mean that our situation is hopeless, therefore we're just going to do whatever we want. We're going to look for other gods for salvation. We're just going to turn away completely from the covenant. That as opposed to seeing the chastening of Yahweh, that they would repent and, and turn toward him, they have used this as an excuse to go even further beyond, uh, to go further away from him. And therefore, the sentence of condemnation is just. And the man has come back. And so we continue into chapter 10, which is continuing in this context. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, or a lapis lazuli, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes, now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house. When the man went in, 
and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of Yahweh went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of Yahweh. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness, as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions, without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims and their spokes, their wings and the wheels, were full of eyes all around, the wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called, in my hearing, the whirling wheels. And every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, and the second face was the human face, and the third the face of a lion, and the fourth forth the face of an eagle. So, when the man comes back, having typified those who have uh, been preserved, and ostensibly the death and devastation of everybody else, uh, Ezekiel now turns and sees that in this expanse that was over the heads of the cherub. Oh, wait, cherubim? Who are the cherubim? Well, without any warning or or any explanation, uh, Ezekiel has turned from ca- talking about the four living creatures upon which this uh, whole thing is built, is now calling them cherubim. And that's why we've called them cherubim almost from the beginning, because the same thing is, is seen in chapter 1 as in chapter 8, 9, and now in 10, and now they're called the cherubim. Uh, cherubim, uh, you're thinking of a cherub today, you think of something from like a, a, a Renaissance painting, a, a cute little uh, plump baby with wings. Uh, that's not at all what it is. It's a fearsome creature. Uh, that as it has these four different heads, has these wings, these human hands. It's a kind of a a, a mixture, uh, a man-beast-looking thing that would terrify anybody who saw it. And so uh, these things. So he sees that this lapis lazuli slash sapphire thing uh, thing above uh, everything, uh, and that there's an appearance like a throne there, and thus it's it's again the voice of God and God's presence in 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 some. Uh, image vestige of God and the voice tells this man who's gone and tabified everybody to take uh, burning coals from between the cherubim and to scatter them over the city and so Ezekiel sees this guy do this and again Ezekiel puts a lot of effort into trying to describe what he's seeing here with these the cherubim the cherubim the wheels fascinate him that we can tell. In chapter 1, we have a lot of the description we have in chapter 10. A lot of it sounds very similar, full of eyes. And he's really tripped out by this, that you know, the wheels never turn, but they always move straight. You got a wheel within a wheel, and it's called the whirling of wheels, and maybe some kind of gyroscopic thing. Uh, language clearly fails Ezekiel. The Hebrew of this is rough. Uh, you can just see the frustration of trying to see things and then convey the things he's seeing into language. Uh, talking about the majesty of these the cherubim and the ability to move uh, all around, like what's going on here. The sounds of the wings uh, sound like the voice of God Almighty, this roaring, booming thing that would have overwhelmed a person. Absolutely. 
and and all of this. What does it mean for this the, this man to take the uh, coals and to scatter them everywhere? Well, what kind uh, of coals are there? Why would there be coals there? Why are there burning coals between the cherubim to begin with? It's not something that's really described uh, or explained to us. Um, and interestingly, we might actually get some help with this from Revelation. Now, if you've already had ears to hear, you've already heard a lot about things here from Revelation. The idea of somebody going and marking the, the faithful, the righteous remnant, is something that we see in chapters 4, uh, chapter 15, um, chapter 14. Um, and, and here the idea uh, of taking some ashes or taking some coals and casting them upon the ground uh, is something we see in chapter 8 of Revelation, where there it's the incense altar. And the idea of the incense altar is full of the prayers of the saints. And the angel takes these and casts down these coals of the incense altar, and you hear all of these roaring sounds, and, and basically it's, it's judgment being cast on the earth based upon prayers. And so coals, you, know, you have coals in, in a fire... The fire that you have is an incense altar. So probably even here in Ezekiel, the idea is that there's this incense altar of incense being offered in the presence of the of the throne of Yahweh, and now these coals are being thrown upon Jerusalem. Uh, you can even see as maybe the prayers of the righteous calling out for justice. But what it certainly is is the fires of judgment are about to come upon the city. It will turn into literal fire when the Babylonians burn the whole thing down. But long before that, it is still uh, burning embers of violence and devastation and degradation uh, that will come upon the people. And it's kind of decreed here, this final act here. And notice that the glory of God has already lifted up back upon the threshold. And the cloud has filled this whole court area. Um, we're going to see that there's an even more dramatic event that's going to come afterwards of great importance. Uh, but we see the beginning of this motion and judgment has now been thoroughly uh, cast upon the city. And this picture that Ezekiel uh, has to see is very distressing to Ezekiel, very distressing, uh, and it won't get any better as the vision uh, begins to reach its uh, ultimate conclusion. And we look forward to discussing that more uh, in a future edition. Until then, we uh, hope and pray that the Lord will bless and keep you until we're able to meet again. Mm -hmm.